0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Is Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The
1: reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products, and the views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree, its affiliates. We have a really great show, our first live show back to start 2018. We have a guest in the studio here to talk about his new book, Unfinished Business, Tam Bayumi. He's at the IMF. Tam, thank you for coming down to uh, to our Wharton campus here. Thank you very much for having me. We are going to have a, a, a European-focused discussion, given his book is focused on the European financial crisis, or the North American financial crisis, as he calls it. Uh, but before we turn to a conversation with Tam, as well as a just sort of extended conversation in Europe, we've got Professor Siegel for some brief comments on the start to 2018. Professor, the market has continued to be robust. Any any thoughts here as we start 2018? Yeah,
2: ro- robust may even be an underestimate. Wow. What a beginning, smashing through 25,000. And, you know, those of you who saw me on, you I was on CNBC yesterday quite a long time. I, I feel I'm now the most pessimistic person in the room. That has never happened, I think, in history. Wow. And when I say pessimistic, I'm not pessimistic. I, I called for zero to 10% returns, which is, you know, pretty quite okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm hearing people talking about uh, 10, 20 to 20, 25. Um, And, of course, anything can happen in the short run. But uh, there's a lot of bullishness out there, and, and there's a lot of good things happening. But I'm I'm um, I'm still sticking with the fact. that we'll, we'll, we could have a good time, but I think we're going to get a correction at some point. I think the Fed is going to raise three to four times. The stronger we are, the more they will raise. Um, that will be a concern. Political concerns. Uh, you know, I people are talking about infrastructure. I don't think it's going to get done. I don't see where the money's coming from, and I think the Democrats have been emboldened by, uh, you know, basically stone-facing every one of the Trump policies. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not predicting wonderful things this year, not terrible things this year. Um, We got a pretty good – then we got employment It was pretty good. I mean, a a little bit soft on the payroll. Unemployment rate still, you know, 4.1. I look at that closely. I I said 3.5 is definitely a trigger for – really wage increases, um, and we've been going down almost a percent a year since the crisis. So, I mean, it's, that, that uh, the 3.5 will be reached if we continue at the rate that we're going down. We didn't go down last month, but uh, by the end of the summer. So, you know, this, this, is, this is a lively discussion. We need to pare down the growth or, or get that in participation rate up and that's the hope that, that people who had left the labor force are gonna come in supply those jobs without any inflationary pressure. And I hope it happens. But it's it's certainly not uh, a slam dunk um to uh to occur. Yeah, so three to four
0: times hiking by the Fed. Uh interest rates have been inching up ever sort of the long end has been inching up um any just,
2: just barely though. I mean, yeah. you know, we have the ten year at uh, two forty seven. Um you know, uh, you know, we'll get to three percent. Um, I mean, we're going to get we're going to get above two on the Fed funds surely by the end of the year. You know, somewhere between two and two and a half. So, the uh, question is, how much do we want to compress that uh, that term? So I'm not too worried about inversion. Certainly not not yet on on that. I'm just worried about uh, bonds being a little bit more competitive with stocks. And we know now that you know the ten year now at two and a half is is well above. I mean, the, the dividend yield, because of this big rise, has caused the, the dividend yield on S&P to fall to 1.8, 1.9. So we're good now, 60, 70 basis points. Don't forget, we were above for many years uh, following the crisis on the dividend yield on S&P above that 10-year. So, uh, you know, there is, there is uh, you know, some people who might want to sit with uh, cash or bonds, uh, you know, as the rates are rising. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to become too bearish. I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, it, it looks good. I will caution one thing that, that is interesting, though. And we, uh, you know, we got some trade numbers out, uh, some factory numbers out. Um, the latest estimate for fourth quarter GDP is only 2.3 to 2.5 percent. Um, so a lot of people thought we to have three, uh, uh, three three pluses in a row which we've uh, had three pluses in the second and third quarter, uh, does not look like it's going to happen. Now, there's still a lot of data to come out, but the early read is definitely below three. So, you know, we're we're talking about, and I hear people now talking about maybe 4% GDP growth in 2018, and unless we get a big acceleration, um, that doesn't look to be in the cards quite yet.
0: We're going to have a, a European-focused show with two guests here, with Tam Bayoumi in the studio and then Frederic Ducroset, who's calling in here shortly. Um, any thoughts on the European economy or markets before we turn to our, our two guests well, who, Europe, who are going to dip, deep dive? Is,
2: is, Europe is in the earlier stage. You know, they, they had that double dip, first the financial crisis and then, of course, the debt crisis. And now, so there are a few years behind us, as you can tell. I mean, I think Draghi is going to ease off on... On, on QE and then sometime in maybe 2019 they're going to start raising rates. So they're about two years behind us, and they're in the early stage, and their valuations are still very reasonable. I I'm I'm really optimistic. I mean I think I think uh, Europe is is a good place uh, to put your equities.
0: Very good. So on on that note, we'll we'll, we'll let you sign off, Professor. Thanks for uh, some comments.
2: Thanks for having me. Bye.
0: We're uh, so we're going to turn our, our conversation more deep dive into Europe. Uh, we have Frederick Ducrosay calling in. He's uh, an economist. He's been uh, he's been one of our return guests. He's you can find him on Twitter where he publishes a lot of his commentary at F Forward Fred. Fred, thanks for coming back to our show. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so you heard Professor Siegel lead off with a little bit of commentary that he likes the European equities. He thinks the uh, the economy is a few years behind the U.S. Maybe you could just start at the highest level. You're focused on on through sort of the economy side. What's your big picture view of Europe? Where they are in their cycle? Uh, you know, everybody's been talking about the Euro boom last year. Uh, what's your What's your thoughts for 2018?
1: Well, from a, a top-down approach, I do like Europe too, and we uh, we favor our European equities at picked as well uh, in broad terms, I would say, of course, you have to look at valuation and sectors uh, consideration. But we we still uh, believe in this uh, form of continuity in Euroboom, as you mentioned it from from last year. That was a story of 2017, mostly. But I think near term, there is little, if any, evidence of a slowdown in the uh, pace of economic expansion. Uh, When you look at Europe and uh, at the euro area in particular, you have to uh, deep. Into uh um, more details uh, in terms of the uh, country level uh, features of the of the expansion, and then I think this year is again the year of the uh, laggards the uh, two countries in particular France and Italy, which have lagged the first phase of the uh, recovery are not catch catching up with the with the rest of the pack and actually well advanced in this expansion phase as well and it 's not the kind of country you think of in terms of uh, you know, bullish uh, performance, uh, whether it's uh, the economy or more structural features of the of the cycle. So I think France, Italy, and perhaps also uh, some specific sectors more sensitive to this cyclical expansion are indeed uh, to be favored in any uh, asset allocation this year.
0: Interesting. And so from the economic point of view, I mean, we saw unemployment rates continue to take down. I saw one of your charts on Twitter showing just the German unemployment rate compared last 20 years. It's sort of, you know, at the 5.8% today, um, well below the average for the last 20 years, while you basically have the euro area and is is just getting back to its average of the last 20 years. Any any thoughts on just the trends in, in unemployment across the euro area?
1: Yeah, well, of course, the first reaction you have looking at this kind of chart is that uh, um, there is still a lot of heterogeneity in terms of uh, country uh uh, it needs, probably it requires a lot of structural reforms in those countries to kind of catch up with Germany, whether or not it's desirable, by the way. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it also means that the momentum is spreading towards uh, all of those countries, including, as I said, France and Italy, which in terms of unemployment is still above the long-term average. And it also means that it also has important implication uh, for the uh, outlook for inflation. And that's clearly the second topic to monitor very closely this year. We just had today some kind of disappointing figures for uh, euro area inflation, Uh, just below 1.5% for the headline. It's it's still far away from the ECB's target. But whether, uh, I mean, depending on what happens in the very near term uh, on uh, inflation, it could have quite significant implications for ECB policy and market pricing of such uh,
0: policy. Yeah, we're, we're talking with Frederick Ducrozet of a peak Tay asset management economist. We have Tam, Tam Bayumi here in the studio with us, uh, author of Unfinished Business. Tam, uh, any, any thoughts on or, or questions you want to jump into for, for Fred uh, in terms of the, the outlook for Italy and outlook for France, the, the economies there?
3: Well, I guess uh, the key question for the euro area economy in general is, is the 2018 2017-2018 um, boost, sort of a long-term phenomena, or is it that everybody needs to replace their cars? Basically, uh, we know that in the US earlier after the um, earlier in the recovery, there was a few quarters when there was very strong growth, and then it kind of tailed off again after everybody had kind of fill, fulfilled the things that they needed that they postponed for so long. So, I guess that that would be my question about the euro area.
1: And that's indeed a very good question, because, uh, I mean, the good performance we have uh, on a cyclical basis should not overshadow the, the the massive challenges that the euro area still faces in terms of uh, the labour market uh, reforms, the, perhaps more Im- importantly even uh, the political-slash-institutional uh, integration that uh, the region and the monetary union in particular needs. To achieve uh, for this economy to be ended, this expansion to to be sustained, sustainable over the next few years, I think it's a bit more mixed in with that respect uh, compared to the, the cyclical picture uh, for two reasons. First, because countries like France and Italy will still face uh, similar challenges. I would say even regardless of what uh, President Macron will do in France or uh, the next government will do in Italy, which by the way is a big. Uh, risk event to, to to watch for this year: the election in uh, in, in Italy on March the fourth, and also because the um, couple, the new couple for uh, the President Macron and uh, likely uh, Chancellor Merkel again this year, is uh, a bit more fragile than markets seem to be uh, uh, pricing in right now. And I think there are still quite a lot of disagreement on in terms of what uh, the President and the Chancellor want to achieve for the euro area and that will be clearly the answer to your question uh, i'm not expecting the euro area to turn in some sort of uh, united states of europe that's not the point it will never be uh, the same model but uh, we need to know with clarity and visibility for investors where we are headed in terms of the institutions uh, for instance whether or not there will be some form of debt mutualization in the euro area not today not this year perhaps not even in five years, but whether that's on the table or not, and what the ECB will do with QE, uh, which, I mean, uh, now is a huge portfolio it has to manage uh, over the next decade, I would say. Those two particular questions, to me, uh, will shape policy and the market reaction uh, starting
0: this year. And last year was really the year of you know politics driving every single conversation on the show. As a as an investment strategist, I didn't think I would have to become as much of a political scientist as we, we had. As uh, it, sort of an economist, there, Fred, what do you think about the polit- politics? I mean, twenty seventeen maybe when is best case scenario for European politics, as least mm-hmm. disruptive? Maybe is what is there, is there more risk this year that it doesn't go as smooth
1: now clearly i think uh, the, the risk has faded um risk in europe by definition by construction will always remain uh something to to bear in mind for for investors uh for instance if something bad happens in italy with the the eurosceptic five-star movement managing to form a uh, government in italy which i think is very unlikely but if that happens obviously this would be a, a big shock again this year but Beyond that, I think first, the recovery is so strong that the economy has become more resilient to such uh, shock and, and, and bad surprises. And second, I think that uh, the, um, the importance of politics uh, now, uh, perhaps post-Brexit vote in the UK, uh, post-Trump administration and, and, and recent decision in the US, it's a completely different situation. But have changed, uh, and uh, for I mean, for Europe with huge implications for new political parties in Italy, in France, elsewhere, which would like to follow the same route. And if you want, for instance, uh, to win an election in Europe today, you cannot afford to uh, push for an exit from the euro area or from the European Union. It's pretty clear in the opinion polls, and even in Italy, the Northern League, for instance, the very extreme party on the far right for instance will start and have started to change their the shift their focus from from mm. the EU and the euro area to more domestic factors. So in a in a natural it's still a risk. Political risks remain uh perhaps the main uh uh risk to watch for the for the outlook again this year, but not in the same systemic way uh, that they have been uh monitored in the past and Obviously Greece is another example. Uh, if Greece manages to finally turn the corner and, and exit a bailout package this year, that also would be a huge step, in my opinion, uh, for I mean heading in the, in the right direction. Very good.
0: What do you think about the euro? I mean, in terms of one of the outlets for the the political concerns last year, I mean, I think one of the reasons the euro rallied so largely is that the, the risks weren't manifest as much as the people thought, potentially. Is that your view? I mean, what did you think caused the real rally in the euro last year? And do you have any views on, on the euro this year?
1: I mean, you're right. Uh, you might uh, mention the Fed. You might mention the, the US uh, part of the euro-dollar uh, exchange rate. You might mention also the, I mean, China uh, in the equation because China was a big risk and capital outflows there have had an impact. I think on the euro uh, area and on its currency in particular. But in the end, it's all about uh, what happened in the, in the French elections and um, having, you know, avoided the worst-case scenario in France now today we are close to the levels that we uh, had uh, in terms of both the currency and interest rates so in terms of broad financial conditions uh, that we had just before the french election so essentially i think we went back uh, uh, removing this risk back to the situation that we that we had uh, early in 2017. looking ahead well, it depends, again, uh, on the Fed as well and on the, on the U.S., because if you have ele- inflation coming back in the U.S., if you have uh, the tax cuts having a, a big impact on the economy, you mentioned just before uh, 3 to perhaps 4% GDP growth in the U.S., that would still help the U.S. dollar, I guess, and uh, perhaps limit cap the uh, upside in the euro. Around 120 to 125, I think it's very manageable for the euro area economy in the end.
0: So, yeah, you don't think Draghi is getting nervous with the, the rise in the euro?
1: Perhaps not for exports. Perhaps, perhaps not for growth. More uh, so for inflation. Because the, when you look at the transmission channels, the uh, sensitivity and through uh, from the currency strength in that case to uh, growth and inflation, in Europe, it tends to be larger for inflation over the past few years. And that's, by the way, what, is the, what the ECB is focusing on. Not so much on growth, actually. Of course, it's. A welcome news that the euro area is growing above 2%. But uh, inflation, core inflation in particular is still stuck around 1%. And if you have, on top of this quite fragile situation, a euro strengthening towards 125 or perhaps 130, yes, that would be a risk, at least uh, in the short term for the ECB uh, perhaps to delay an exit from QE into
0: 2019. So what is your overall outlook for the ECB this year? It's... it's uh, I saw your piece for summarizing 2018. Is it, you know, how do you think about what, what? when they tapered their QE program, when they st- eventually start to raise rates from the negative, when we get off that negative rates to a zero, zero and positive rate?
1: Well, interest rate hikes, as much as I wish, and I would like the ECB to, to discuss a uh, uh, one-off hike in the deposit rate. Remember, it's at minus 0.4% in the in the euro area with growth above 2%. It's a bit odd uh, for the banking sector in particular. It's still a drag. I think it's very unlikely that the ECB uh, even thinks about hiking rates this year. Even the most hawkish members of the ECB have given up on this because the exit uh, sequencing, first uh, QE and tapering, then interest rate hikes, has now uh, been. I mean set in stone uh, in terms of forward guidance. And I think that won't change this year. So what I think the ECB will do is talk the talk, of course, adjust the communication, um, turn even more bullish, slash hawkish, by the way, at some point by the summer. And around June to July 2018, I think a a decision will be made in terms of QE tapering, uh, and this time using the word (laughs) really ending QE. But I think the, the decision will be eventually spread over few months maybe three to six months uh, to be sure to be safe to be prudent persistent uh, as they said uh, and that qe could actually end and be terminated uh, in 2019 interest rates then would be hiked around the middle to september 2019 i think the first step by 25 uh, 15 to 25 basis point would
0: would be reasonable so we're still talking about low negative rates for a long time uh we're, we're talking with frederick du the senior economist at Pictet wealth management in the studio tam Bayumi, tam you know you're focused on the banks of europe what do you think about this negative rate policy how it's impacted the banks um and we're going to focus a lot more on the banking, you know your your book and in the banking situation there but what, what do you on the ECB negative rate policy any any thoughts on how that's been impacting the banks
3: well, obviously there are two effects which move slightly in opposite directions. One of which is you're providing stimulus for the economy, and as such, you're providing more demand and therefore more potential for loans. On the other hand, as was mentioned, you know, banks, um, the negative rates have not been good for them for their bottom line. So, on some level, it's a bit of a sort of take with one hand and give with the other. Um, Presumably, if the uh, interest rates started to be hiked, it would be because the European economy is doing reasonably well. So presumably, the demand side would be sorted out, and you'd get a bit more on the uh, in terms of the uh, interest carry.
0: So it's ironic that the the hike in rates could actually be stimulated for these for the European economy
3: in a way. Yeah, the reason for the rate in, rate in, uh, <laughs> rising rising. Rates would be would be stimulative, yes. <laughs> Fred,
0: any any view on how you know one of the the, the risks is, is the sort of the banking system itself? Is that do you do you see the banks there having you know go, as they go through forward to Basel three and the leverage has, that's come down over, over time? Do you still what's your sort of read on the European banking system? If you see risks in any of the banks, uh, say in Italy, or just what's your, what's your overall read of the whole banking system?
1: Well, Considering what you just said the trade-off indeed and the, the, the drag we had from negative interest rate policy in particular from regulation, of course, I think the banking sector in Europe is doing quite well, remarkably well, actually, given the circumstances uh, and I expect the, uh, the, the sector to to, to, do, to continue to do well uh, in the in the next few years, emerging if you wish from from this uh, multi year crisis. Um, there might be one additional upside which is some kind of um, feedback loop with the corporate sector because the euro area is uh, highly uh, banked (laughs) banking uh, i mean highly relied on uh, the banks in terms of the financing of the of the economy the uh, small and medium enterprises in particular and the boost we had on the economy which is now amplified uh, by a number of factors we've just mentioned in turn, is also having an impact on, on on the banking sector. Volumes of uh, growth uh, of loans, sorry, are increasing at a faster pace. When you look at the recent data, not only the aggregate uh, growth in terms of, uh, of bank loans, but also, uh, in particular, the long-term loans of banks provided to uh, corporates are increasing at a faster pace. The credit impulse is improving. In other words, uh, following up on the on the recovery, and I think that. In this trade-off between, well, in a sense, essentially price and and volumes, the uh, recovery will help the banking sector also. At some point, the, um, again, situation, specific situation of Italy, uh, of the Spanish small banks going through huge uh, um, restructuring over the past few years, I think can be reasonably expected to bear fruit starting this year. And who knows, it could be an additional upside to the, to the outlook uh, in 2018.
0: When you described the, you know, you're, you started off by saying the, the positioning for Pictet looks at the, the Pictet wealth, it looks at sort of cyclical sides, still optimistic there. Is the banks part of that view? Would you overweight European banks, Italian banks in particular?
1: With a great deal of caution because our uh, analysts here are obviously looking at uh, every single name with, uh, uh, with details, uh, and, and not all the Italian banks would have our favour. Yes, I think it, uh, it makes sense to expect uh, the uh, stronger recovery, the slightly steeper yield curve we expect, a bit more of an hawkish uh, ECB talks to result in an outperformance of the sector.
0: Very good. What about uh, other other sectors of the market? That so the cyclical parts? Does that tend to be small caps over large caps, or any other sectors? You, you you tend to, and I know you focus on the economy more so than the markets. But any other things that you would describe as your your positioning for Europe or, or, or otherwise?
1: Yeah, as an economist, I would the macro economist would look at uh, uh, country uh, positioning uh, and, and uh, uh, relative value. I would say rather than than sectors. Uh, as you said also at the beginning, there is a to three year lag perhaps in the in the in the euro area business cycle relative to the u s uh, not to mention the differences in terms of uh, composition of uh, indices so i'm always a bit cautious on that and uh, I would refer you to the to our publications but broadly speaking in this cyclical recovery if we uh, conclude that the euro area is indeed a bit lagging uh, relative to the u s but in ca- in a, some kind of mid Cycle position, where there could be some upside surprises in those countries I mentioned, including Italy and France. Then uh, it makes sense to uh, indeed uh, over, uh, uh, I mean, to favour some sectors, small caps, and some sectors which are highly, really, um, highly sensitive to the to the cyclical recovery.
0: Very good. What, uh, what, what are the other big political stories uh, that, that I saw you talk about on Twitter? You said one of the big political games in the next couple of years is going to be the ECB. Who's going to be the head of the ECB? And I know you are an ECB watcher. Um, what, what's your thoughts on how you know that's going to play out over the next few years?
1: It uh, all starts with the vice president. Mr Vitor Constancio uh, who will have to be replaced this year by the summer and uh, it starts uh, more specifically in January with the Eurogroup meeting on the 21st and then in February a decision could be made or actually at least a, uh, a short list of candidates could be presented to the EU parliament uh, to be then uh, finalized I think it starts here because uh, Spain with mo- will most likely claim a position on the executive board of the ECB and this in turn only confirm that uh, a big country like Germany will likely claim the position for the president. It will not be discussed, I think, explicitly, officially before the end of this year because uh, the term of the president, Mr. Draghi, ends in October 2019. Last time we had to make such a decision, uh, the final uh, vote was a uh, vote. There is a vote at the EU Parliament, but the final decision was made uh, uh, during the first quarter of the year. So that would bring us to Q1 2019. But again, the decision that will be made on the vice-president position, then on a number of positions at the uh, supervisory board, at uh, uh, some other EU institutions ahead of the EU uh, elections in 2019, those decisions will all have an implication for uh, the likely candidate uh, for the presidency. My money is still, as you know, on uh, Jens Weidmann, the current president of the Bundesbank, not only because it has to be a German, but also because he's uh, a very, very smart and and very, very uh, well-known and respected central banker. But it could be a surprise, uh, and it could come in particular from uh, French President Macron, who would like to push for another candidate perhaps For instance, a French
3: and perhaps a
0: French woman Hmm. would be some candidates. Tam, any sort of closing thoughts for Fred as we're wrapping up the first segment of the the show?
3: Well, I guess uh, one question I would have is, although I'm, of course, speaking on my own behalf, the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report has focused on the long-term issue of overbanking in the euro area and where where the profitability in the long term will come from. And I was interested in any views on that, because that does seem, you know, although balance sheets have come down as a ratio to GDP compared to before the crisis, they're still pretty high and not really as as low as they were in the early 2000s. Yes, I
1: agree with that. Um, I mean, beyond this recovery, we need to be prepared for the next recession. Essentially, that's always the question. And also the question I start to see rising uh, in, in some client meetings, for instance, what happens if and when the ECB has to ease again and the banking sector is facing another recession, uh, perhaps even in financial crisis. I think it's not so much about public debt, with a few exceptions. Italy, obviously, the big elephant in the room but much more about private debt and about non-performing loans in particular, something we've not mentioned in this discussion, which, which is clearly, again, and still a drag on the on the banking sector's performance. If the ECB slash SSM slash uh, global regulator manage to bring down the level of NPLs, uh, which seems to be the case since last year, uh, on a more sustained basis, then I would say this... Will help the banking sector to uh, not only generate profits but also find a way to uh, define their new business model. And it will probably be a combination of uh, several propositions we've seen floating uh, around. I'm not so sure what will be the the, the, the end game and, uh, and the final uh, framework, in particular for the for the regulation of uh, this sector. But I think that's the that's the key challenge. That. It, needs to continue beyond the current recovery when the slowdown starts, when either the U.S. slows uh, or China uh, has a problem with its own debt, then we'll know for sure whether Europe has uh, managed to strengthen its its, uh, institutions and banking sector to an extent that uh, allows the, the sector to continue to expand beyond the next recession.
0: Very good, Fred. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, stay tuned we're gonna be talking second part of the show in more in-depth with tan by author of unfinished business we talked about the financial crisis what to learn from 2008 what not to learn uh, and and you know really his outlook for the rest of the banks in, in Europe I'm Jeremy Schwartz you're listening to behind the markets and Sirius XM 111 we'll be back after a short break welcome back to behind the markets here in business radio powered by the warren school i'm your host jeremy schwartz here in our philadelphia studio with tan bayoumi he's the deputy director in the strategy policy and review department of the international monetary fund he just released a book here in the u.s in october called unfinished business the unexplored causes of the financial crisis and the lessons yet to be learned. Uh, Tam wrote *Unfinished Business*, one who's on sabbatical from the IMF as a senior fellow at the Peter Institute for Peterson Institute for National Economics. Uh, and I just saw Tam that your book was named one of the best economic books of 2017 by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Really, what an honor! Congrats. Well, thank you very much.
3: Yes, it was an honor.
0: Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit. What you know, as we go into the the story on, on *Unfinished Business*, what got you to be interested in this? You were working at the IMF. What got you to sort of leave, take the sabbatical, and and want to write this
3: new book? Well, the real reason was the slight frustration with the literature on the financial crisis. And there were two pieces of frustration that I had. The first was that it was normally about what happened over the crisis rather than how the crisis happened. And the second was that it tended to talk about either the US half of the crisis or the European half of the crisis, rather than what I thought and argue in the book strongly, which is the two were, uh, were parasitically intertwined. Hmm. And so I have a story which starts as early as the 1980s. And there are a series of mistakes made largely to do with the bank regulation, although not exclusively. And that indeed, by 2003, most of the really important decisions had already been made. And after that, uh, to some extent, the uh, sort of doomsday machine ran itself out and the crisis eventually happened. But most of the important decisions were actually made way before, you know, a lot of the stories you hear about, I don't know, uh, about, uh, you know, sort of rating agencies and things like that. There's sort of 2005, 2006 stories.
0: Yeah, we were just talking over lunch. It's like, how do you go get a U.S. housing crisis that turns into a depression for Europe? Uh, Maybe talk through how, Why? give us the, the background. Why do you think the U.S. housing crisis actually did fuel this, say, European depression?
3: Well, my story has a lot to do with the Northern European large banks. And essentially, the story has to do with the fact that for a series of reasons, uh, regulation on these banks proved inadequate, and in particular in 1996 a, um, the regulation of their capital buffers that used to support their loans was uh, changed so that they could use their own internal risk models to define those capital, that capital support. Given this opportunity to define their own uh, capital support, They exploited these internal risk models and actually uh, leveraged up their loans to a very large extent. And to a very significant extent, these northern European banks financed large parts of both the U.S. uh, housing bubble and the various bubbles in the European periphery. So uh, these banks become a central point for finance of these uh, bubbles elsewhere. And then, of course, when the bubbles eventually collapse, a lot of it comes back, and that explains why there was a lot of harm done to the European economy.
0: Hmm. And so in the U.S., we had this big... Housing crisis. We had the sort of quote-unquote nationalization of Citigroup because of all the loans that Citigroup had made. And you know, some of the banks, you got now Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, they're well past their pre-crisis highs. But we sort of quote-unquote nationalized City in a way, diluted all the shareholders, and they're they're nowhere near back to where they were pre-crisis. But talk about what got the U.S. banks in generally a stronger position compared to say the investment banks, and then towards the European banks that made them sort of vulnerable to this. You, describe, you start off by saying parasitic relationship.
3: Yes. So the European and U.S. banking systems uh, became much less stable over the 90s and 2000s, but in very different ways. In Europe, it was the large banks at the center of the system that destabilized. As as they say, they used their internal risk models to provide smaller and smaller capital uh, uh, cushions and make larger and larger loans and become more and more fragile. In the US, by contrast, there was the split was not between the large banks and the others. It was between the commercial banks and the investment banks. So a commercial bank is a bank that lends money to URI or to a firm. Okay, they make what's called commercial loans. An investment bank, on the other hand, buys and sells assets. Now in the US, the commercial banks are quite well regulated. And that's why Uh, banks such as Wells Fargo and Bank of America came through the crisis quite well. The investment banks, the likes of Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, but also Morgan Stanley were not very well regulated. And they actually went under over the crisis. So, um, but because... The crisis was at this relatively small investment banking part of the banking system, not in the core of the banking system. The harm to the US economy was much less than in Europe, where the harm was to the actual center of the banking system.
0: Hmm. And, and so when you think about the, the large banks in Europe, and talk about the size that these guys balloon to. You usually talk about the size of Citigroup versus ING. What, what, how does that impact how the European crisis played out, given
3: just the size of the, the loans that, the, that people had in these European banks? Well, an important part of this story is that European regulation stayed national so that national governments were responsible for their own large banks. So as you say, if you take the example of ING in Holland, ING had assets of over 200% of Dutch GDP by 2008. Yeah. Now, clearly, that's an enormous bank and it's an enormous problem for the government if it gets into trouble. Uh, just in case you think that that's just a complete outlier because Holland isn't that big, uh, Deutsche Bank had assets of almost ninety percent of German GDP by two thousand and eight. Contrast this with City, uh, with City, which, while it was a very large bank, the U.S. was so much bigger that its assets were only fifteen percent of of U.S. GDP. So you can see why, for the U.S., bailing out City was so much easier than for Europe to support ING or Deutsche. Yeah, it's simply a numbers game.
0: And so where, where do you think they stand? Uh, you you talked about you keep coming back to this internal risk model. I mean, why do you think the U.S. went away from having, you know, the internal risk model problem and sort of the Europeans still has the internal risk model problem? Do you see them, uh, the banks are basically able to mark their own books and say how much risk they have?
3: I mean, how, do you think that's going to change? Like, where are we in that scenario? Okay, well, let's start with the background as to why it happened in Europe and not in the U.S. So the reason it happened in Europe was, in 1996, the Basel Committee for Banking, which is the international regulator for banks, um, allowed large banks to use their own internal risk models to define their, their capital requirements. However, earlier than that, in the US, the US had provided a separate overlay. And this happened after the S&L crisis of the early 90s. And it was called Prompt Corrective Action. And what that did was that said was even the big banks had to hold five cents of capital for every dollar of loans they made, regardless of anything else, what's called a simple leverage ratio. So because of that simple leverage ratio, which was in place in the U.S. and not in Europe, the commercial banks, which were the banks in the U.S. to which this simple leverage ratio applied, were actually quite well Capitalized Hmm. and therefore able to come through the crisis reasonably well. I mean, some of them went, you know, some smaller banks went bust, but given the size of the collapse in the housing market, on some ways the banking system did quite well. The area that got into real trouble, as they say, is the investment banking area. Now, so that's the background. Going to the future, uh, in the US, the Frank Dodd legislation not only kept the simple leverage ratio, but actually somewhat upped it for the large banks. And they also made sure that separately um, there were other uh, regulations of the capital which made sure that large U.S. banks didn't exploit uh, uh, regulation. In Europe, until very recently, uh, internal risk models are still the only thing that... Uh, that European banks are subject to. Um, this is going to change. They just passed Basel III, but it's going to change very slowly. And so, some other constraints on the European banks will come into force. Now, to be fair, after the uh, crisis, the charges required on these internal risk model calculations went up. But as I say, they kept the internal risk models, which was actually, in my view, the core of the problem. Mm. And that's only going to change very slowly over time.
0: We're, we're talking with Tam Bayoumi. He's the author of Unfinished Bis- Business, uh, the Unexplored Causes of the Financial Crisis and the Lessons Yet to Be Learned. Uh, a lot of this stuff is negotiated. We talk about why things are the way they are. It's a lot of it's political discussions. And we sort of talked a little bit about politics on the first part of the show. But at the core of the debate in sort of how the European system is being integrated, it's really France versus Germany and some different thoughts about how they should form this monetary union or the, the sort of economic integration between France and Germany. Talk about where you read those tea leaves today um, between Macron and France, Merkel and Germany, and how it all plays into the, the you know the crisis that you know, happened and, and what how it's going to play out in the future if there is another
3: you know banking situation. Right. Well, we talked about why there was a large recession in the U.S. but a depression in Europe, and another reason for this was the bad design of the euro area. So I discuss this in the book. So the French and Germans both wanted a single currency, but they wanted it for different reasons. So the French thought that the single currency was necessary in order to get to an integrated economy. And in the process of getting from a less integrated economy to a more integrated economy, you should provide support to countries who got themselves in trouble. The Germans, by contrast, thought you could only bring you should only bring in a single currency once you'd got an integrated economy, and in their view, you didn't need to support anybody, and if you did, that could cause them to uh, do unfortunate things, exploit uh, incentives. So, even though France and Germany wanted a single currency, they they wanted it on different terms. Now, what happened in the end, because of the fall of the Berlin Wall, was that you got a French early currency union with a German no bailout clause. So you got the worst Mm. of both worlds. I mean, um, now, so that's where we were. And that is why over the crisis, it was so difficult to provide support for European countries who got into trouble because the no bailout clause had to in the end be sort of basically uh, uh, got around. Now, at present, we have a very, very similar Uh, essentially disagreement between the French and the Germans. So President Macron has suggested we should have a euro area finance minister and that that finance minister should be able to lend to countries who get themselves into trouble. The Germans have come back and said, oh, yes, we think a finance minister would be a good idea. But that finance minister should be able to restructure the debts of countries who get themselves into trouble. So you've got exactly the same no bailout versus support for countries that has been happening for 50 years. It's just a new version of exactly the same debate. And we'll have to see whether President Macron and uh, Chancellor Merkel can move beyond this um, and actually move to something in the middle where you end up not with two opposing views but with something in the middle.
0: And, and you know, when we had this these crisis problems, and Greece may have been, I don't know if you think that was the pivotal moment of the crisis or if you think there was another pivotal moment, but the Greeks um, voted for a package of, of no austerity. They didn't want to take what the Troika, the ECB, the IMF, and everybody was saying they needed to take, yet they didn't want to leave the euro. And you say, if somebody was going to leave the euro, Greece probably needed to leave the euro. Um, but will anybody actually leave the euro? Will they kick anybody out of the euro? You said it's sort of this imperfect union, but is it possible that it just sticks together because Germany just won't kick anybody out?
3: I think it's very possible it will stick together. I've never believed in the sort of euro area coming apart in the middle of some economic crisis sort of thing. I I never thought that was a likely uh, outcome. I'm a student of history, and there are two 19th century currency unions in Europe, one in the Scandinavia and the other called the Latin Currency Union. Both of those lasted for a long time, rather longer than they were really useful for. And both of them in the end came apart, not in the middle of a crisis, but because everybody came together and decided to take their toys home. And uh, I think that the issue with the currency, with the euro area, is whether they can get sufficiently, uh, a sufficiently integrated economy where things will happen as in the US, where you have some, some states going up and some states going down, but it's all sort of churning, or whether you end up with what you've had so far, which is long periods of depression for various countries. And if you get that, at what point does the electorate decide that, you know, the currency union isn't really for them?
0: So is that is the risk there, the big, and we, Fred mentioned this at the beginning part of the show, the big risk is Italy. So the po- politics going into the Italian election in March, is that the real risk for Europe that the Italians, you know, they've been this 20-year period of very no growth, you know, zone, and, and that that's the true biggest risk in, in Europe?
3: Um, and by the way, I should have mentioned at the beginning, I'm obviously talking on my own behalf, not the, not that's the IMF. Um, the answer is, I think that a situation in which some countries remain in a central recession for very long periods is the big risk. Yes. Which exact country it is strikes me as less certain. Hmm. But I think that that underlying risk, which is that rather than having sort of churning with some people growing fast, other people growing slow, but it changing, you end up with sort of some areas growing slowly for very long periods of time. That is the essential risk. So to me, the big question in the euro area is, will they be able to lower their deficits? At present, they've had deficits which, given their own internal rules, are only just below what they're allowed to have. So if they get hit by a large shock, they can't expand their deficit. Uh, Another thing they have is they haven't really uh, knuckled down in terms of structural reforms. And thirdly, they haven't really moved towards a genuine um, banking union. Now, if they do all through those, then I think there are probably rather bright prospects for the euro area. If they don't, then I'm much more sceptical. And in this regard, President Macron's changes look very good. He's taken seriously the attempt to deregulate the French labour market, which is a big problem in France. And he seems to want to bring down the French uh, budget deficit, which is also a big issue. And if France could be seen as a leader in terms of being prepared to do these things, then that might have a very good effect on others.
0: Hmm.
3: So, when you think about one of the, the other topics of the book was how
0: a lot of the European economy has been, been pushed off to the ECB for support, there hasn't been this sort of integrated policy between monetary policy, fiscal policy, the structural reform that you're talking about here. Is that something you see anywhere doing well? Is that something you see any hopes for that coming together for Europe?
3: I'm not so sure about coming together, but as I say, look, I think for the foreseeable future, there will be different countries doing different things. I mean, one of the interesting things about the euro area is, of course, at the beginning, everybody assumed that the problem was most likely to be Germany and that it would be the periphery that would do well. The Germans responded to that by doing really wide uh, structural reforms called the Hartz labor market reforms. Now again, at this point, France has been an issue in the euro area for a while, and Italy even more so. Now, as I said, in terms of France, President Macron seems to have a reformist agenda, so that's very positive. On Italy, it's less clear uh, whether the how far the government is um, dedicated towards uh, real structural adjustment. So you know, that's that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some of the other things you're focused on
0: at the IMF, you told me you're also looking at sort of technology, digitalization, and productivity generally. When you think about economic growth, you got, you know, the number of people working and how productive they are. What what do you see as the, the causes of slow productivity growth around, uh, you know, maybe Europe, but also just broadly?
3: Well, around Europe, I, I mean, there's a broad issue not limited to Europe, which is that the labor force, at least in most of the advanced countries, is slowing the rate of growth of the labor force as the population ages. So clearly, if you've got a slower growing labor force, you're unlikely to grow as fast as you did before. In addition to that, also, general productivity has been coming down for reasons that remain unclear but may have something to do with the crisis. And um, given that clearly what's needed is a boost to um, productivity, which normally comes from the kind of difficult structural reforms that the IMS is quite well known for suggesting to countries. Um, The question is how far uh, countries will actually implement them. In the euro area, in particular, one of the logics of creating the single currency was the thought that the increased competition across countries would force countries to c- carry out structural reforms. now say it worked in Germany, but it didn't really work in the rest because they ended up in this, what turned out to be an unsustainable boom. So they didn't think they needed hmm. to do the kind of structural reforms. Now, the question is whether at this point um, there is a political desire to do these structural reforms or whether they will carry on being put off.
0: We're down to our final two minutes. The show goes quick. Um, Any thoughts, uh, any things on the book that you just want to highlight that we didn't quite cover, things that you think are very important, lessons or things you just want to point out of of why people should be looking for the book?
3: Well, I guess what I'd do is I'd come back to what I said at the beginning. Um, There are lots and lots of books on the crisis, but I think this is the only book which really goes back and tells a coherent tale about how we ended up with a crisis in both Europe and the US at the same time, and goes back and really starts from the 1980s and tells a story of uh, mistakes. And this matters, and this matters for a very simple reason, which is if the crisis was due to malfeasance, which is the story that you generally get from other stories, other books, then presumably there is no real solution. If, on the other hand, the story is my one, which is that people, well-meaning people made bad decisions, then those decisions can be reversed. And as long as they are reversed, presumably the effects of the crisis will go away. So one of the reasons for writing this book was to talk, talk about those deep reasons and also to point out which ones have been solved and which ones remain to be solved. And of course, it's the latter part, which is why I called it Unfinished Business.
0: Very good, Tam Bayoumi, author of Unfinished Business, The Unexplored Causes of the Financial Crisis and the Lessons Yet to Be Learned. Thanks for coming down to our Wharton studio here in Philadelphia. It was
3: a huge pleasure.
0: Thanks again. Um, I'd like to thank our listeners. I'd like to thank our producer, Patricia McMahon, stepping in today. Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks for for listening. Have a great week, everybody.